back to what it was. So, welcome to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and a person who wants to reclaim my body wisdom. And on, to, on today's show, I'm very excited to have authors Anne Blickley and David Montgomery with their new book, What Your Food Ate, How to Heal Our Land and Reclaim Our Health. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. Yeah, thank you, thank you a lot, Laura. Awesome. So you, both of your backgrounds are so extensive. I'm just going to ask you to tell me a little bit about yourself, and we'll start with Anne. Sure. Uh, let's see. I am, uh, I, I just for simplicity's sake, let's just say I'm a free-range biologist. That's My training and education is is uh, in biology and natural history as, as well as uh, environmental planning and Professionally, I've worked in um, environmental planning in the public health fields and running around looking at plants and animals. So, so that's me. I've got a bad case of plant lust as well. Great. Love it. How about you, David? Well, yeah, I had the great fortune to marry a gardener, um, but, I'm, but I'm a geologist by training who works on the evolution of landscapes. And I've been thinking about and writing about for you know, 15, 20 years now, uh, a bit on the side, about the relationship of people and the land and the soil and how the way we've treated the land has affected ancient civilizations. And now with the new book with Anne, looking at how the way we farm ripples up to actually impact human health. And you're a MacArthur Fellow with Genius. And so the, the books, um, you have several books, including uh, Dirt, The Erosion of Civilization, The Hidden Half of Nature, It's Growing a Revolution. And now you have a new book out. So tell us about the new book. Well, the new book is called uh, What Your Food Ate, and Ann and I wrote it together and literally argued over every word, so it's a truly collaborative <laughs> effort. Um, and it looks at how the way that we treat the land in farming affects the health of the soil and how that in turn affects the health of, of our crops and how the health of the soil and the health of our crops and what's in our crops that, that we feed to uh, our livestock affects which in meat and dairy products, and how that all ripples up into influencing uh, human health. So start tracing how soil health translates into human health, both for better and for worse, depending on how we farm. And one of the purposes of the book, um, we were saying before the show, is that we, we want a unified theory of agriculture and nutrition. These are not separate things. It's not commodity. Health and nutrition are linked. Right, Anne? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... If you think about, you know, way back to the dawn of agriculture, I mean, w- one of the very purposes was to not only provide, you know, enough food for our species, but also that food needed to be of ho- high quality. So in other words, yeah, we needed calories, but we needed it alongside things like phytochemicals, uh, vitamins, minerals, and um and then, as we go into in detail in the book, also you know it, it you know fats are are quite a diverse um, crowd of nutrients, and we want things in their proper balance as well. So that's where agriculture meets nutrition. And it would one of the things that David and I argue in the book is that we ought to be looking at agriculture uh, more with an eye to you know what is the nutrient density of the plant and the animal foods in the human diet. And how can we improve those? 
And one thing that makes your book very readable, it's actually, it, it's, it's, it's both uh, has some really um, hefty science information in it, but it's also a fun book to read. And what makes it a fun book to read is the um, human stories. And so um, I love the story about Eve Belfour. Um, and like in 1943, she wrote a book called The Living Soil. So tell us the story about Eve. Yeah, I'll I'll start off and then I'll hand it over to Dave for for uh, details on on her. She was um a British farmer and she had um been concerned well what was really interesting about her is she was farming in the run up to and through World War 2. And um she began it was interesting because this is a time of food shortages, resources are very much on people's minds. And she was interested, along with um, some peers of hers, farmers, as well as um, some doctors, in what is going on with the English population in terms of disease prevalence and, and incidence. And they firmly believed that the way in which the British farmers were growing their crops and raising their animals um, was not all that it could be. And so Eve Balfour and others um, set out to set up an experiment in which they grew crops and raised animals under different conditions, and then they, you know, to the qualities and standards that they had at that time, they took a look at, you know, what were what were levels of minerals in um, foods? What about vitamins and so on? And um, Dave, you got anything to add on uh, Lady Eve there? Well, yeah, she um, she was one of the early people who really explicitly tried to connect agricultural practices and policies to human health outcomes, uh, and her her views were really rooted in observations, empiricisms that that were uh, connections that she and colleagues and a, a group of farmers and medical doctors uh, put together, but they really lacked explanatory mechanisms to explain the, the sort of the why, the science behind the conclusions they were drawing, uh, in part because people didn't understand a lot about the role of microbial life in the soil, bacteria and fungi in the soil, in provisioning crops with uh, vitamins and minerals and, and stimulating phytochemical production, all things that subsequent science has shown really matter for human health, particularly for chronic disease prevention. Um, but that, um, But at the time, the connections weren't really recognized. So she's a really good example, I think, of, of someone whose insights were pretty well ahead of her time. But her story is a really good story. And one of the things that, that Anne and I have learned in, in getting into trying to write about scientific topics in a way that are digestible, and, and we're happy to hear that you thought that there was a fun read, because we think that you know a bit of history can help the science go down. <laughs> and so... <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, one of the things we do is we try and translate the science so that people don't have to go read journals to understand the implications for their own health about the kind of things scientists are putting together. But it helps to make it readable. And, and Balfour's one of those people who is an inspiring story and really helps sort of make points um, that we return to throughout the book. Um, Right, and so one of the things she's quoted as saying is that the health of soil, plant, animal, and man is one indivisible whole. And again, she was saying this in the 40s, 1940s. Right. And and so at the time, people thought she was probably some crazy woman that's, you know, emotional or whatever and unscientific. 
But in reality, she was actually deeply scientific, or she she's she was foresight. So one of the things she concluded is that plants did not consume fungus to get nutrients, but fungus made nutrients available to plants. So she yeah. saw symbiosis. Right. Yep. Yeah. She was on it. She was totally yeah. on it. Um, the and a lot of science that's happened since her time have really reinforced and pro- her views and provided mechanisms, explanations for how it all works. And so that's a lot of what we go through in the book is trying to look at those connections that she was highlighting. That the health health of the soil translates into the health of crops, translates into the health of livestock, translates into the health of people. Um, and so we divided the book into sections to look at the science in each of those areas. Because um, you can draw the thread of, of very credible peer-reviewed science through that whole argument now in ways that really supports her early insights. But as you might imagine, you know, it's really complex to try and connect, you know, the health of the soil to the health of people. Um, there's a lot sort of in between those things. And part of our job was to try and identify, read, vet that science and string together, caught, you know, how it works like beads on a string. To be, to be able to go from one side of that, um, from the soil side, all the way over to the human side. And Balfour's one of the, one of the great um, people who were, you know, one of the lights that was pointing in this direction, you know, almost a century ago now. Yeah, one thing I've been thinking about is I, I like to weave almost everything is really super, super complicated and also super simple at the same time. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that um, Eve said is that she could tell the difference uh, by tasting a tomato in terms of what soil it was grown in. And that sounds right. kind of crazy, but on a complicated level, it actually makes some sense, does it not? That there's taste and that's what these phytochemicals are and how that works. So. Why does why does why do tomatoes taste different based on the soil that they're grown in? Yeah. Um, well, you know, we every living thing responds to its environment in one way or another, and a tomato plant does as well. And so, what she was didn't know at the time, but what as David was just mentioning, what we now know is that. Plants produce phytochemicals in response to all kinds of things. Um, most typically you hear it talked about in terms of environmental stressors like um, heat or a pest or a pathogen. But we also know now that phytochemicals are um, they're sort of words in a language that a plant will use to communicate with its microbiome. So the microbiome is or all of these symbiotic communities that associate with a plant um, uh, specifically really close around the root system of a plant. So these phytochemicals are flying up and down the green body of a plant, you know, from the root system up to the top. And what this does is it, um, it gives tomatoes, depending on their phytochemical profile, what kind of conditions they're raised in, Phytochemicals are a big part of the flavor profile of every um, fruit or vegetable. And, you know, the wine world is, is on to some aspects of this. And, of course, their, their word that they use is terroir. And this is the idea that where, um, where grapevine is growing, the kind of soil it's rooted in, that those qualities and characteristics can carry through to the grape and thus the wine. And terroir, that concept, it, 
it really does apply to um, other plant foods for sure, and even uh, even animals as well, because we know that the diet of animals, depending on what they're eating, flavors, phytochemicals in particular, they will carry through yep. into um, into meat in some cases. So we're so, going to take a break, and we're going to talk more about what are phytochemicals. I mean, I guess there's 50,000 known phytochemicals right now, and that might only be a, a little bit of what they really are. So we're talking with the authors of uh, What Your Food Ate, David Montgomery and Anne Bickley. Uh, we're going to take a break, and we'll be right back. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund and very pleased to have um, joining us by phone the authors of the new book, What Your Food Ate. Um, and when we went on break, we were talking about a phytochemicals. So what are phytochemicals and McClay? Yeah, phytochemicals are uh, <laughs> chemicals and compounds made by plants. They are supposed to be in the plant body. Plants make them for a uh, couple of different reasons at least. They help. Uh, so plants are stuck in place, right? They can't get up and run away if if a predator or a pest or a pathogen is after them. So they're kind of their own uh, factory, their own chemical factory. And so they make literally tens of thousands of different kinds of phytochemicals that serve um, defensive purposes, even uh, protective purposes, like, you know, it's a rough life out there in the sun, and some phytochemicals help plants deal with UV radiation. Some phytochemicals, say a, a pest hops on a leaf or something like that, and uh, they they can deter herbivore pests off, off of a plant. And phytochemicals are even... Uh, serve a role in communication between a plant and its um, root microbiome. So it's a way that plants use these chemicals to, you know, I guess what I'd call, you know, live the good botanical life. And they are, um, as I'd mentioned, there are, there are thousands of different phytochemicals. And people know, already know what some of these are. Beta carotene is um, a phytochemical often found in squashes and pumpkins, anthocyanins, that's a, another kind of phytochemical found in blue, red, and purple kinds of berries. And when we eat a diet rich in phytochemicals, um, our bodies are also able to use these phytochemicals in ways that uh, benefit our health. Phytochemicals have been known to have, um, they serve to influence the um, the way our our body metabolizes sugar. So in this way, they can sort of normalize um, the release of insulin. They, they help our cells sort of do its janitorial and, and sort of tidying up that needs to happen um, in our cells every day. You know, the garbage needs to go out. We need to bring new things in and wake up and do it all over again. So they... They, phytochemicals are interesting. They have no caloric value, and so for the longest time, the nutrition world has not really considered them 
a nutrient because nutrients are traditionally thought of as things having caloric value, so a protein, a fat, or a carbohydrate. But I argue, David and I argue, that phytochemicals are, you know, every bit as important because here we are, you know, this walking blob of trillions of cells that has grown through consuming calories, but how are we going to take care of all of that biomass that is now the human body? And this is where phytochemicals play a big, big role in um, our own uh, defensive and protective mechanisms. And phytochemicals are known to influence um, genes that uh, modulate, uh, say, an immune response. And anything else to add there, Dave? Uh, well, the, there's you know, phytochemicals are one of the key things that farming practices actually have a huge impact on their expression and development in our crops. Uh, and so it's sort of, a, you know, several pieces of this chain of going from the way we farm to the soil to what's in our crops to then what that food can do for sustaining our health once it lands in our bodies. And so when you think of these phytochemicals, people often, um, we've heard like dark chocolate's good for this and wine's good for this and mm-hmm. green tea is good for this. Is fat. A lot of the reason why those foods are considered good is because those are rich in specific types of phytochemicals. And again, there's 50,000 of these, so um, it's highly, highly complex. Yeah, it, it is. And, and, the, and the other thing that we know about phytochemicals is that just sitting around every day and eating nothing but beta carotene, let's say, that doesn't really, that's not what we really want to do. We want to have both a diversity and an abundance because these different phytochemicals are interacting with our cells and our tissues in different ways. So it's sort of like you want, you want the full, uh, the full contents of the toolbox, so to speak. You don't just always want to be having, you know, a hammer or a wrench. You need, and I would, I would even liken it to, you want the whole hardware store, you know. Let's go beyond the toolbox concept. And, and that's where phytochemicals are um, so important for human health, you know, because we just see all the things that they do in in plants, and we know, you know, plants would for sure be nothing but big, fat, sitting ducks without their phytochemicals. And so um, you had a chapter on uh, body, uh, on wisdom of, of the cows, and you want to just talk about how cows, I mean, uh, why this sounds really complicated, because how do I get the right phytochemicals for my own personal body, I mean, there is something about body wisdom, and we know that, I know that when the food is up from the garden, it's like yum. <laughs> Yeah, right? yeah, and so, yeah. And cows yeah. do the same when they're grazing, right? They know what food's good for them. They have a body wisdom about that. Yeah, they do. Yeah, all all ruminants do. And and I would say, you know, in some ways these ruminants are even smarter than we are when it comes to um, eating. I mean, no, we definitely choose what we feed ruminants. But left to their own devices and their own body wisdom, you put a ruminant out into a diverse pasture, and they will select which plants to eat in combination with other plants at what time of day and in what amounts. And part of what is, is modulating all of their behavior is that they're just taking, they're taking in phytochemicals and they're taking in fiber, and all of that is interacting with their own microbiome, in fact. The, 
the heart of the ruminant microbiome is really in uh, the, the namesake place, the rumen. So this is cower ruminant, you know, takes in a big mouthful of plants. The first place that lands is this sort of keg or barrel-like area, the front end of the digestive tract where the rumen is. And there's constant kind of feedback and communication between these rumen microorganisms and the the cow gut and the cow brain. And in some ways, you know, the microbiome is, is probably steering the cow to this or that plant to, you know, more of this, less of that. And And this is just the thing about body wisdom. Every organism, now I'd say for panda bears it's kind of boring, you know, bamboo day after day after day. But nonetheless, that is the body wisdom of a panda bear, and they know what to eat, and they know how much. And and humans have a body wisdom too. It's just harder for us to get in touch with it because we're, we're bombarded with advertising. We're bombarded with advertising. Um, and what we've done Synthetic to our soil. flavors. Yeah, yeah, and what we've done to our soil. I, wonder, and right. I mean, I want to take a deep dive on that uh, coming up um, on the next segment. But um, um, so, but one of the things, one of the quotes from the book is, why are um, academic research farms trying to figure out how to restore, why are not academic research farms trying to figure out how to restore our soil fertility instead of how to grow in crappy soil? So, so much is about the soil health. The soil health is connected to our health. Yes. Yep, that's that's the short version of the book right there. <laughs> <laughs> no, tell us the long version because you you like uh, Plato actually wrote about the uh, dirt in dirt in the dirt uh, the end of erosion of a civilization. Plato was writing about humans not doing dirt very well. Yeah, you know, humanity has a long history of a relationship with the land and the soil and people have been writing about both, you know, how to sustain soil fertility and r- about our experience in degrading it for a long time. Um, and what we know more today about is sort of the of more of how it works, or sort of what underlies it. But you know, the, the one of the we sort of view one of the biggest you know, projects that humanity faces this century is really wrestling with the problem of degraded agricultural soil around the world um, and how to restore health so and fertility. We're, we're going to take another crop break, crop and that's where we come back. We're going to talk about soil degradation and how do we, how do we, um, uh, how do we heal our land and reclaim our health by understanding what our food eats. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, and we're talking with the authors of What Your Food Ate, How to Heal Our Land and Reclaim Our Health, and Bickley and David Montgomery. And so um, North American farmland has lost about half of its natural endowment of soil organic matter. Um, and that's roughly the same for the rest of the world. Um, so, David, uh, what does that mean, that we're lo- losing the organic matter in our soil? What's the problem with that? Well, when you think about what makes for a healthy, fertile soil, it's not just crushed up rocks, right? You could take a pile of granite and crush it up into sand, and that's not going to give you fertile soil. It's just one ingredient for fertile soil. 
and organic matter, uh, you know, dead stuff, the remains of once living organisms, and then the actual microorganisms in the soil are all the way up to you know, things you can see, like worms, uh, in places where they're native, uh, are, are important for building and maintaining soil fertility. And so the loss of sort of half the organic matter in our agricultural soils, you know, not just across North America, but around the world, as you were saying, uh, really shows that we've run down the batteries of terrestrial ecosystems, the ability of the land to keep producing food into the future. We've been drawing it down in order to feed ourselves today. And that it's one of the really biggest underappreciated environmental crises that we face this century. But it's been hard to wrestle with, in part because we can boost yields by using you know lots of synthetic fertilizers. Um, and but if you look at the the combination of practices that underpins modern conventional agriculture, intensive tillage, uh, the, the overapplication of synthetic nitrogen fertilizers, and focusing on on monocultures or just two crop systems in the case of corn and soybeans. Um, those are recipes for degrading soil organic matter. It's kind of how we got to where we are today. Um, but there's there's a way to reverse that in thinking about it um, in terms of practices that build soil health. And it turns out that those are similar to the practices that you would adopt if you wanted to build the nutrient density of crops, to rebuild the mineral micronutrients, the phytochemicals, um, and the balance of fats, and if we think about extending it to, to meat and dairy products. Um, do, do you think this health. is a fair say, statement that conventional agriculture is based on junk science? You know, I wouldn't say it's based on junk science, but I would say it's based on incomplete science in the sense that what we basically looked at in um, the 20th century in terms of prioritizing you know, agronomic philosophies was soil chemistry and soil physics, both of which are important for soil fertility. But what really got left off the, off the intellectual boat, if you will, is the importance of soil ecology and soil biology. And in part, it was because a lot of the really good science of the last 50 years that has demonstrated the connections uh, wasn't around in the 30s and 40s when the philosophies behind modern conventional agriculture really took root. So I wouldn't so much say it was junk science as much as out-of-date science um, that we've learned so much more since those times about how to actually combine the ancient wisdom of things like cover crops and crop rotations. We now understand why they work to help build fertility. Um, how we can combine that ancient wisdom of those relatively old traditional practices with uh, a more modern ideas like no-till farming that disturbs the fungus less in the soil um, and precision application of nutrients when one does that. Um, and the common theme there is looking at practices that build soil health. Um, and there's been, of course, philosophies of agriculture around for a long time, like permaculture and the original version of organic agriculture that prioritize building soil health that work really well to build soil health. The challenge today is trying to convert that philosophy into the next conventional agriculture and take what we call regenerative agriculture today that is based on um, you know, no-till cover crops and diversifying rotations, a recipe for cultivating the beneficial life in the soil, how we can actually convert, make that the, the conventional agriculture of tomorrow would be how I think we could sort of update the science behind conventional agriculture and really align it with what we know today. Yeah, and that and having that um, uh, soil health aligned um, or understanding the, the connections between human health and soil health, right, Anne? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
I mean, one of the, um, that's an interesting question about, you know, the junk science. Is it based on junk science? I would agree with Dave, it's based on incomplete science, but I would say junk sort of enters into this discussion in that um, we don't necessarily couch it in these terms in the book, but the microorganisms in the soil, they have a diet too. And we know that, um, you know, life forms can eat a lot of different things. A human being can eat nothing but ultra-processed foods and, um, and live for a while. And in the soil, when, when microorganisms are, say, consuming a whole lot of synthetic nitrogen fertilizer or they're succumbing to the effects of agrochemicals, that's not the kind of diet that makes for a robust and normal functioning soil microbiome. That's sort of a, a that's a perturbed and a pretty upended kind of a microbiome to try to grow a crop in. And so, one of the most basic mechanisms about why soil health links to human health is that when the soil microbiome is is eating, you know, a diversity of forms of organic matter. And what I mean by that is both uh, the things that flow out of a plant's roots, these are the exudates, and these are, this is, you know, this is carbon-rich and fat-rich uh, products flowing out of a plant's roots. It's sort of the buffet. It's, it's one part of the buffet for soil microorganisms, and just as the dead parts of plants and animals are. Now, that needs to go through a little bit of processing by larger soil organisms before it makes its way into the microorganisms. But you want, you want a diverse diet for soil microorganisms because that then ripples into plant health and plant defense. And we had been talking earlier about phytochemicals, and so a plant's defense is based in, you know, large part on what kind of phytochemicals it's producing and what's stimulating those phytochemicals. And then, you know, when we have high levels of phytochemicals in the human diet, that is a benefit to our cells and tissues and, and overall health. So there's, there's lots of causal mechanisms within each of these worlds, the soil world, the plant world, the animal world, and the human world. And when you were you to list all of those out, you would begin to see some of these linkages between soil health and human health. And I want to be clear, too, you know, we're not saying that you know, all of these other things don't matter, you know, one's genes and your microbiome and whether or not you are drinking clean water and breathing clean air. Those things matter too, but it's just that the way in which we grow our food is an underappreciated factor uh, in, in human health. And we need to start looking at that because it's such a huge part of the determinant of the, you know, the quality of nutrients in the foods of the human diet. So um, uh, one of those things, like uh, modern farming methods have killed out the majority of worms that previously lived on farms, and yet worms can, pruce, uh, can boost crop yields by 25%. So, Yeah, and that's enough to close any you know, the purported yield gap between organic and conventional agriculture is smaller than 25%. So, I mean, soil life is hugely important, and we have, by adopting the practices that are characteristic of modern conventional agriculture, we've really degraded soil life globally. And if, when you look at the really big picture, take the geological view of supporting life on this planet, 
the life in the soil is the foundation for life outside of the oceans, and yet we've been treating it like dirt. Yeah. Now, I want to go back to telling some stories of um, people who've been working, like Eric Dillon. Um, he had land in Montana and had 1% organic matter, whereas historically that land would have 5%. Or David Johnson, he spent 30 years uh, working in oil fields and went back to college at 50 year, at 50 year olds, and he did a bioreactor. So tell us some of the stories of these people that are realizing um, a, a vision of a healthy egg system. You know, that's one of the sort of inspiring things about getting to uh, be able to write books like this, is you can go visit people who are living um, the ideas and see if they work, and their stories are inspiring. Um, you know, uh, David Johnson was a, a, a guy who you know, didn't get into academia until very late in life and then pioneered a new way of thinking about how to... Uh, develop uh, a composting system that can be very effective and is scalable, sort of a small uh, system that's scalable, but is based on, um, you know, intensive composting material for about a year, but but the microbes do most of the work. You set it up, fill it full of a mix of uh, manure and yard waste, and let it run, and at the end of the year, you have this incredibly beautiful, rich compost. And he has done the microbiology and looking at how it works and how some of the... Um, how that affects what is uh, uh, in the soil, how that affects gets what's into food. Um, and you come from a very non-traditional academic perspective. Um, and many of the farmers that we've visited who've been done, who've been adopting regenerative practices, um, like the, 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 the Paul Elizabeth Kaiser at Singing Frogs Farm in California, or Brian and Nito O'Hara at, at um, Tobacco Road Farm in Connecticut, are doing very innovative and interesting methods in terms of intensive composting for sort of small-scale vegetable production that have you know produced nutrient-dense foods and have this incredibly rich black soil that you then go look at their neighbor's soil and it's made you know, on the same geology under the same climate, just treated differently. And it's like night and day, uh, like comparing beach sand to a rich chocolate cake. Um, you know, you can just see the difference. And one of the powerful things that's happening at Single Farm, is that farm, is that uh, their cabbage has fifty percent more zinc and magnesium, um, and just a fifth of the so- sodium. So it's healthier food, and they're making money. I mean, they're making a hundred thousand per acre because of this I mean, wh- uh, new, this uh, healthy approach to agriculture. Yeah, one of the things that's turned Ann and I into optimists on this whole issue of you know global soil degradation and the relation to you know, using soil uh, restoration as a tool for um, improving the human diet is that it's profitable for farmers. I mean, the regenerative farmers tend to use well, they use far fewer um, inputs, and by inputs, you know what I mean are things like uh, nitrogen fertilizers. Um, uh, uh, diesel, uh, pesticides, herbicides, and insecticides. And when you think about what the big expenses are for most North American farms, it's that list right there. <laughs> so if you can cut down on the amount of fertilizer that you're using, nitrogen fertilizer, um, you know that's cutting out an expensive part of a farm budget. And if you can harvest as much food, and one of the things that we've learned in writing these books is that successful regenerative farmers can outproduce their conventional neighbors. They can grow more food on the same on the per hectare. Um, and so if you can grow more of a crop to sell and spend less doing it, it's a recipe for a more profitable farm. And, you know, for farming to be sustainable, it has to be able to sustain the farm. And, and in our current global economy, that means maintaining, you know, staying in the black, being profitable, staying in business. Uh, and so 
you know, that it works economically for farmers and that it works environmentally and that it works to grow better food for people. It's a win-win-win. A win-win-win. Yeah, it's what your food ate yeah. and what, what your food ate. We could take another break. Um, and uh, so uh, in your book, you say, we don't face a stark choice between agrochemical intensive farming and mass starvation so long as we ditch the plow, keep the ground covered with living plants and grow a diversity of crops. So we're going to take back. We're talking with the authors of What Your Food Ate. And uh, we'll be right back and we're going to talk about health and wellness. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. We're talking with the authors of What Your Food Ate, How to Heal Our Land, and How to Reclaim Our Health, David Montgomery and Anne Bickley. And, um, one of the statistics that you had in your book is that in 1980, the Center for Disease Control estimated that a half of Americans are obese or overweight. Now it's three quarters. Now, is the health of the soil connected to this epidemic of obesity, anxiety, and depression? Are those all connected in some ways? I mean, I think um, I think to some degree, yes, exactly how. Uh, there's probably, you know, several things at play here. We do know that um, nutrient density affects signaling between the gut and the brain, and it affects do we feel full after a meal. And so if we're eating foods that, say, are... um, lower in phytochemical levels, or say you have a diet that doesn't have much fiber in it, or let's say you're eating um, a bunch of ultra-processed food, that all sends, that all sort of messes with the way our hormones work and how our body signals to us, okay, I'm full, it's time to stop eating. And If you get, I mean, one of the reasons, Laura, I'm just, you know, summer is almost here. Uh, Well, actually out here in Seattle, it's almost here. We're we're waiting. I'm thinking about midsummer peaches and midsummer tomatoes. And one of the reasons uh, fruit at at peak ripeness is so appealing to us, to, to, to humans, is that it's got this certain combination that our body wisdom goes, aha, this is the bliss point. It has the, the perfect amount of um, omega-3s, the right mix of uh, amino acids. I love this phytochemical um, profile that's contributing to this flavor. And so our body is taking all of that in. It's, it's like information or data that helps sort of control and modulate the hormones that signal, aha, yeah, just one perfectly ripe peach, and I am satisfied. Exactly. So that's that's part of why nutrient density is so important in foods, is that it's signaling to our body, this is enough to eat, you're fine, or it's more like, wow, we still have not had enough of you know this particular compound or molecule, and so the brain and the gut start communicating, and a person starts eating more and more. 
So um, one study you mentioned is that people can reduce cholesterol levels in one study uh, 15% after just one month of getting more phytochemicals. So, um, and so this idea of body wisdom, and I know I wanted to mention there's an, another book, 1959, Soil, Grass, and Cancer. And so this idea of the, the complexity of soil, the complexity of the plants, and the complexity of our people, uh, of our bodies, being united at that moment that we're actually eating. Does that make some sense? Or drawing on that when we consume food. And so, I mean, I, 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 I know we only have three minutes left. I, I want to get to what is the future of farming? How do, we, how do we make eating healthy from healthy soil commonplace in the future? How do we make a world a better place by having, making this better, by having that commonplace? And what are all the consequences of that if we do? Well, you know, the, the the simple connection there is the conclusion we come to in the book, which is, you know, what's good for the land is good for us, too. And if we can root our our philosophy and policies and practices in farming in that simple truth, uh, it would go a long way towards doing that. Now, the more complicated question is, okay, well, how do you actually build soil health? And, and that that's where you get to that combination of of no-till cover crops and diversity, sort of disturb the soil as minimally as possible, which is not to say never never plow at all. In some systems, it's needed to help uh, uh, defeat weeds. But the, to minimize disturbance of the soil, grow a diversity of crops in the land that all relates back to the soil ecology. Um, and treating the soil as an ecological system is really the recipe for doing that. And, you know, if we can build consumer awareness that the that we should all be asking, you know, how did the farmers that grow our food actually treat the land that it was grown in? Because those connections through the micronutrients, the phytochemicals, and it turns out the, the balance of certain fats in our meat and dairy products, how that will ripple up into our diet and affect our health. Because uh, many of those things that uh, we now know that farming practices can greatly impact uh, micronutrients, phytochemicals, and fats in our foods uh, are things that um, influence uh, processes of, say, inflammation, for which many chronic diseases that plague so many people in the developed world today uh, suffer are rooted in inflammation. So one can trace those connections through, but we, if we reframed our agricultural policies and subsidies and priorities around supporting farmers who are adopting regenerative practices to help ease the transition. It would go a long way towards that. So there's things that can be done from the consumer end, things that can be done from the policy end. But at the at the heart of it, it's a new philosophy of looking at the land as a living system and prioritizing farming practices that build soil health. And it's yeah, last and minute, I, so your website, I just want to make sure you get a chance for people to hear this and they want to follow up. Sorry to cut you off, Ann. Sure, yeah. Website is dig2, that's the number two, dig2grow.com. More on the books and us there. And I just wanted to end maybe with a thought, and that is that the Farm Bill is coming up for reauthorization here. And agricultural policy is really health policy, and it, it would be really great if somehow we could get that piece of legislation to reflect that, you know, maybe the farm and health bill or something along those lines. I think farm that would help. Farm and health um, bill. Yeah. Yeah, farm how about it? Farm and health bill. That sounds great. Um, thank you so much, um, Anne and David, uh, for joining us. Uh, what Your Food Ate, and thank you for listening to Food Freedom Radio. And you know Thanks. who I'm-